verse 1. Just take time to read from the first verse. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place, and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. Amen. We'll end the reading of God's word, uh, the eighth verse. There are times as a preacher when you are, for some strange reason, I say strange in that sometimes you're not quite sure why, the Lord comes by and gives you a deeper or more conscious sense of his presence. I say that because on Sunday evening, there was a sense in my own soul from the very outset of the opening hymn, I sensed there's, there's something of the Lord here. I don't know if you sensed it, but that was what I was feeling right there up on the platform as you were all singing and the service got underway. It is a wonderful thing, and whenever you experience it, and it carries on through the service to greater or lesser degrees, it, it reminds you of what it is you're actually looking for each Lord's Day. It would be a tragedy for us to get to a point where we are content simply with well-ordered services and helpful preaching. We need to be a people who realize that God visits his people. Not just in the declaration of his word, in that they have the word and they see the word and they understand the word. But that he comes to them and meets with them. I don't know if you all understand what I'm talking about. I know those of you who have been here long enough do. I was gleaning through Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably one of the most well-known preachers in the English-speaking world in the 20th century. I was gleaning through one of his volumes, uh, Preaching on Preachers, today. And in the last chapter of that book, he, he addresses this whole subject of power 
in preaching, of the presence of God in preaching. He leaves it to last, because not because it's of least importance, but he's trying to drive the point home. He calls on preachers to understand their need for divine unction, and he, he says in that chapter, what is this? What is this I'm talking about? It is the Holy Spirit falling upon the preacher in a special manner. It is an access of power. It is God giving power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it up beyond the efforts and endeavors of man to a position in which the preacher is being used by the Spirit and becomes the channel through whom the Spirit works. This is seen very plainly and clearly in the Scriptures. He goes on then to give various scriptural accounts, and one of which perhaps most familiar to us is what happened on the day of Pentecost. And he speaks of the apostles in Acts 2, noting this, the significance of this, as I see it, is that here we have men whom you would have thought were in a perfect position and condition already to act as preachers. They had been with our Lord for three years. They had heard all his discourses and instructions. They had seen all his miracles. They had had the benefit of being with him, looking into his face, and having personal conversation and communion with him. Three of them had witnessed his transfiguration. All of them had witnessed the crucifixion and the burial, and above all, they were all witnesses of the fact of his physical resurrection. You would have thought these men, therefore, were now in a perfect position to go out to preach. But according to our Lord's teaching, they were not. They seem to have all the necessary knowledge, but that knowledge is not sufficient. Something further is needed, is indeed essential. The knowledge indeed is vital for you, cannot, for you cannot be witnesses without it. But to be effective witnesses, you need the power and the unction and the demonstration of the Spirit in addition. Now, if this was necessary for these men, how much more is it necessary for all others who try to preach these things? There is not, as I read it, so it's very subjective, this opinion, one in a thousand preachers who preach with a demonstrative evidence of the Spirit upon their ministry. Not one in a thousand. I, if they're out there, <laughs> at least in the English-speaking world, they're doing a great job of evading my attention. Now, there's a major part of this that's on me. It's on the preacher. And I understand that. God knows. And yet, did not Paul the Apostle request prayer from people? Did he not ask, brethren, pray for us? Did he not say that they might pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel? Is is he purely asking there that he would be faithful in declaration? Possibly. 
It would appear to me that he is looking for something more. In fact, by the simple request that he may open his mouth boldly, would seem to give away what it is he's asking for. Because when you read the book of Acts, there is no getting away from the connection between the Holy Spirit and boldness. The apostles become bold when the Holy Spirit comes. Without the Holy Spirit, that boldness is not there. You see it in Acts 2, you see it in Acts 4. The connection is one you cannot miss. Now, how might you pray for me? And how might you pray for yourself if you believed God might supply such a measure of His Spirit that it would revolutionize us both? Are you content where you are, child of God? Are you content? Are you happy that things simply stay as they are? Or is there something in you that cries out for more? And I don't mean purely some vain desire, some selfish motivation, some longing simply that, oh, you would like to be identified as belonging to a church where uh, lots of people are there or something. I mean, if you want lots of people, go to the Church of Rome. If you want lots of people, go to all sorts of expressions of religious endeavor. It's not, it really is not measuring what we have in terms of numbers. It is measuring this sense that we leave knowing the Lord met with me. And there's a difference. And it's that distinction we must be praying for. Lord, bring us, I remember one of our ministers and I heard him recently. I had not listened to him in a long, long time. But I heard one of our ministers. We, were, we attended his church for about a year when I was a student. And he used to always pray, Lord, lift this meeting out of the ordinary into the extraordinary. And I think it's a biblical prayer. Lift it away from just the form and the parts and the details, lift it into a place where the testimony is the Lord was there. I'm sure I have drawn your attention to Isaiah 56 verse 7 before, but I don't think it is to the words that I want to hinge a few thoughts upon here tonight. Because in verse 7 you will see, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. But it was those words, thinking about our day of prayer on the Lord's day, make them joyful. Make them joyful. Is that what you want? Joy? A lot of God's people go around and there's a distinct lack of joy. So let's think about this for just a few minutes. First, joy is a grace God gives. Joy is a grace God gives. We need to see that first because when we say joy, there may be a sense in which we try to drum it up. That's something found within ourselves. 
I don't know if you've ever met someone and you've gone away saying to yourself, what's happened to that person? I remember they used to be really joyful, but that is not what you see today. What, what you saw as you left them on that occasion when you thought that was a different feeling. There's something that has changed about them. And people can change. They can change sometimes and they don't even know it. They, they don't see it themselves. Other times they know, but they don't know what can be done. They don't know what to do about it. And I think that's a real thing. And certainly the devil will, will work very hard to accomplish that, where he will, he will lead and direct in such a way that you are robbed of your joy. Certainly that's what you do. You're, we, we work in cahoots with the devil sometimes because we sin. And when we sin, what does the devil do? Well, he comes and he weaponizes that sin, doesn't he? Starts to tell you about, well, how, how could you be a Christian? when you've just done that or said the other. And you've been there. I imagine you have been there where Satan weaponizes your sin against you. And what's his purpose in doing that is to keep you in the state of joyless existence because a joyless Christian tends to be a powerless Christian. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord, this grace is what enables us in part to persevere. And to persevere in a fruitful way. Not just existing in a stoic fashion, but actually persevering through trials, through tribulation, through persecution, in a way that triumphs. Reflecting that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. It is joy fueling that. And so when Satan comes, and as I say, he weaponizes our sin, is to suppress any sense of the grace of joy. It's to silence the prayer that would cry out as David did in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Now David knew how to sin. He also knew how to get back when he realized where he was. Psalm 51 is a pattern. If you want to know how to have a sense of fellowship restored with God, you pray through Psalm 51. And we spent some time a couple of summers ago preaching several messages through that psalm. It may be of help to you. Joy is a grace that God gives. Look at what it says here. Make them joyful. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. God is the one who makes them joyful. God makes his people joyful. It is a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. When we are filled with joy, when we are living with a sense of joy, therefore the absence of it ought to be met with a cry from our own soul, Lord, give! Give me joy! There can be a physiological and a psychological aspect to happiness. Of that, there's no doubt. If you're, if you're after happiness, there, there are physiological and psychological things that you can do. I have, I, have, <laughs> I have said it here before, you know, in dealing with the children, telling them to smile at the math. 
and uh, some of you noted that and tried to put that into practice. You know, just smiling at the problem, smiling at the, the, the difficulty can help the mind to resolve the issue, whereas if you look at it and just sob and complain, you only add to the struggle. Posture, countenance, clothing, attitude, thankfulness, these things affect our happiness. They do. You know, someone says, I'm miserable all the time, or I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a sort of kind of depression upon me, and yet, you know, they never get out of their pajamas. So, it would help you if you actually, I mean, I'm, I don't mean that, and I, I say that, and it, there may be an element of humor in it, but I, I say it in all, in all seriousness. I, and and the, 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 the overwhelming sense that can come into the mind and heart that brings someone, a man or a woman, or a young person to a point where they, they don't want to actually leave their bed on a given day. Like, they don't want to. They want to move. And all it does is compound the problem. Get to the end of the day, you don't feel better about the whole thing, the fact that you've spent your entire day in your pajamas, you don't feel better. I know we get sick and we have to rest. I'm not talking about that. Please understand the distinction. Getting up, getting fresh air, getting dressed, these things help. How you sit, your posture, shoulders back, smiling more, all of these things affect us. They, they do, they affect our happiness, but, but that's not joy. It's not joy. Joy is a grace. Joy can permeate any circumstance and fill any heart no matter what they are going through. It can change a man who has broken health, someone who is financially ruined, and you would never know it. I've said this before, I say it again, because I know there are different people come in and children that need to hear these things and remember them. But I remember the Reverend David Park, my, my pastor in Balamone, he used to regularly, at least on a few occasions, he was able to go to Brazil to visit uh, Dr. Bill Woods, who was there. And I've mentioned him before as well, Dr. Bill Woods, that children need to be acquainted with that man and his missionary endeavor. But he would go there, and Bill Woods never married. That man had nothing. On the one occasion when the Reverend David Park took his wife to Brazil, there wasn't enough for three people in his home. Bill Woods often only had one other person with him, if anyone, in his home. And so whenever he had two come into his home, he only had, you know, like two cups, which normally was for him and his visitor, but this time it was, he had to give it all, like Reverend Park and his wife had to sort of eat and drink separately from, from Dr. Woods because he didn't have any more than that. He lived a very, very, you talk about simplified life, this man, he lived stripped down life. Every, his whole life was his missionary work. And he transformed the leprosy issue that that part of Brazil had, known as the worst in the world before he got there. And he became recognized by the Brazilian government for his work in turning that whole problem around. One of the people that he treated was a man who was so affected by leprosy that he had lost all his limbs. He didn't have legs, he didn't have arms, and he lost his sight too. I remember Reverend Park talking about that. You see, you, you, want, you, want, you want something to instill in you a sense of gratitude, to recognize where... Like, how good you have it, how merciful God has been 
stand by the bed of that man and hear him recite the Psalms and sing praises to God. Joy filled that man. No limbs, couldn't leave. Leprosy had destroyed his, but he was forever going to be there to his death. He had to stay in that clinic where Dr. Woods did his work. Joy. We read of Christ in Luke 10, 21. Our Lord Jesus, who had nothing materially, Luke tells us at one point how in Luke 10, 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. All of, his, all of his joy was in the Holy Spirit. It's detailed for us there. Joy is a grace God gives. We need more of it. Second, the place of prayer is where he bestows it. The place of prayer is where he bestows it. Look at verse 7. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Make them joyful where? In my house of prayer. Not just in the temple, but when the temple functions as a house of prayer. The temple had become a place of misery for many people. You see that in the life of our Lord Jesus. It became a place of oppression. But when it's a house of prayer, that's when the Lord makes people joyful. It's recorded, and I, every quote that I, I give, I tend to try and find a, a source for it. I, I didn't find one for this, but Spurgeon is reported to have said, prayer is the breath of faith. Prayer meetings are the lungs of the church. I thought, if that's the case, at times we suffer with chronic asthma. There are Wednesday nights, beloved. We come here and I, I don't know if you could really say what we're, we're doing is praying. We're half switched off. Hearts are half engaged. I get it. We're weary from the day. I, I get all of that. I told you before, like if you're feeling weariness in the time of prayer, stand up. I do it. I, I do it. I stay standing in prayer when my body is weak or I need particular help in paying attention to what it is I am doing, I will stand to pray. We are asthmatic. We struggle to breathe heaven's air. And that's what the, you know, the prayer meeting is. This. For the spiritual among you, I mean the, the spiritually keen among you, You'll, you'll know this. The prayer meeting is this funny experience, more like, that is distinct from any other service in the church, generally speaking, where it can be, in one sense, the most blessed occasion for the church. It fills you with such blessing. And it can equally cause you to go away more depressed than any other meeting the church conducts. At least that's the way it is for the preacher. When I hear you like warriors going after God with his promises, there's nothing like it. 
When that anticipation can be felt, when it's palpable and the fervency is, is communicated to everyone around, you can, you can feel the heartbeat of the soul crying out to God. There's something to that. There's a man, there's a woman, there's a young person who's serious about meeting with God. But when you get a general sense where that everyone is, is, is like an army defeated before it ever went into battle, when you're like David coming by and the armies of Israel just standing there, I mean, that, that's how the prayer meeting feels sometimes. David arrives and is like, what's going on? Is there not a cause? Why are we just standing here? Engage. Engage, brethren. This is This is war. It's war. Satan wants to destroy us. Sift us as wheat. I mean, he's right. He, he's, he is nearby. I don't know where he is, but he and his minions don't lurk far from where we're assembled here. Acts 16, you see it as they were going up to pray. They were constantly being distracted by this demon-possessed girl. It was always when they were going to pray. That's satanic tactics for you. Oh, a sense of fervency and expectation. Don't, I, you can't drum it up. It's not all fervency. Ravenhill said something to the effect that the most fervent prayers are offered in hell. I, th- I imagine he's getting that from Luke 16. The man who's suffering and praying that Lazarus will be sent to his five brothers. I don't know if it's even true. The tendency of reading, my, my inclination reading those in hell is that they're gnashing their teeth and rebellion. They're more blasphemous there than they've ever been in their lives. But I see where he gets his point. The place of prayer is where joy is bestowed. It's where the church is made alive. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. Oh, Lord, make this a place of prayer, a house of prayer. And then, finally, the light of, in light of the cross is why he bestows it. It is the truth of the cross that is why he bestows this joy on a praying people. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. Accepted sacrifices. You know, there's no more miserable sinner on the planet than the one who knows that God has rejected his sacrifice. You're talking about hell. I mean, that's hell, isn't it? One of the most horrific aspects of hell is that whatever sacrifice was presented by the individuals who are there, religious deeds, good works, whatever they thought they were doing with their life, it was a rejected sacrifice. Is that where you are? We're here praying on the grounds of an accepted sacrifice, not of works of righteousness that you have done. But according to his mercy, he has saved us. And the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed away all our sin. There is one offering that Christ has 
presented himself without spot to God there on Calvary, we remember this is an accepted sacrifice. Therefore, the house of prayer already has the sacrifice offered that gives to those who are calling upon God all the confidence they could ever ask for. Make them joyful. That's what I want for this congregation. A joyful people. God has made you joyful. I, I, listen, the preacher can't do it. I can't do it. I cannot make you joyful. If you're looking to me, if you're saying, I'm going away on the Lord's day miserable, I, I, I can't make you joyful. If you're expecting me to do that, that is not in my arsenal to dispense. I can give the word. But it's God who makes us joyful. He reserves that power to himself. So you come each Lord's Day looking upward, not to the pulpit, but behold your God. You're looking to Christ. You see his finished work. You see him with his arms stretched out to bless. You see him in his perpetual prayers for his people. And you think to yourself each Lord's Day, right now he's ever living to pray. He's praying now for me. Enter into those prayers with a sense of confidence. He will bless. But you seek him for it. He wants to hear you seek him for it. He wants to hear your voice asking for it. Is, is this not plain? Surely I don't have to rehearse the language of Scripture regarding God's repetition concerning the matter of asking. Ask and you'll receive. Ask and you'll receive. Don't just sit there on assumptions. Don't just sit there saying, I'm good. Don't need to ask for anything. You're like some self-satisfied, stuffed figure in the pew. You're a living, breathing person who needs God. You live under the constant oppression of a world that has fallen and he delights to press upon you the sense of your own weakness that your heart cries out, Lord, I need you. They do this Lord's Day. Come to me. Come to my family. Come to my sons, to my daughters. And that weak, beggarly preacher that you've given to us, Lord, fill him with your spirit. Oh, may the Lord help us. We're going to sing before we get to prayer.